All right. Good morning. Hey, happy Labor Day weekend. I hope, I hope that all of you get a, a break from laboring tomorrow. So, um, hey, a couple things before we get started. First thing is this. Do we have any CU football fans in the house? Nice. Nice. So I, I grew up in the 90s in Dallas, back when the Dallas Cowboys were like Troy Aikman and Michael Irvin and Emmett Smith and Deion Sanders. And so, so Coach Prime and I, we go way back, you know. We're not like best friends. We're like whatever's right beneath that. He's taking all my tips on coaching right now. I'm very proud of him. Um, but hey, go Buffs. Quite the turnaround from last season. We're excited. Uh, while you're feeling clappy, the second thing is this. For anyone who was here last weekend, could you please show some appreciation for Dr. Crawford Loritz? I've been lucky enough to see Dr. Crawford teach a couple times. Every single time he blows me away. Like we were very lucky to have him. So Dr. Crawford, if you're watching on, online right now, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Um, okay, here's what we're gonna do today, all right? So ne next weekend, Jim is gonna kick off a brand new series. If you've been keeping up over the last few weeks, you know that what we've been talking about, what we're gonna continue talking about, is this idea that you and I are in a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual battle going on all around us, and even more than that, Christians, you and I, are commanded to take part in it. Okay, but before we jump back into another series on that next week, we're going to take a time out today to just answer a, a question together. It's something that I believe that we need to get figured out right now if we're ever going to be able to continue talking about this spiritual battle stuff without feeling defeated. Okay, and, and here's the question I've got. It's basically this. If there really is a spiritual battle going on, and if you and I are commanded to take part in it, well, then that makes us technically, in a sense, like warriors, right? And, and if we stick with that image and you stick with that metaphor, the, the question I want to answer today is this. What does it look like to be a mighty warrior, like a mighty spiritual warrior? Because after all, that's the, that's the only kind of warrior you would ever want to be. You would want to be a mighty warrior. That's not a word we use very often, mighty. So let me kind of explain all, all this talk about spiritual battle and about being warriors and stuff. For me, it calls to mind war movies, right? I personally, I love war movies, especially when they're true to the history because I'm like a history geek and nerd. But all of us have seen war movies and you know that in a war movie, the hero is always a mighty warrior, right? The hero's not the deserter, it's not the coward. It's not the dude who's going to die in the first five minutes of the movie. Instead, the heroes are the ones who they conquer their fears and they persevere against insurmountable odds and they do the right thing no matter what and they sacrifice themselves for the people around them. The, the heroes of war movies are mighty men. It's a, so take Saving Private Ryan, for example. It's my favorite war movie. I don't care how cliche that sounds. Um, the, the hero in that movie is Captain Miller. That's Tom Hanks's character. And if you've seen the movie, you know he, he checks all the boxes of a mighty hero, a mighty warrior, right? He conquers his fears. So all those scenes of him where he's got to like steady his shaking hands. Uh, he, he overcomes insurmountable odds, a rescue mission behind enemy lines. He does the right thing no matter what. He stands up above the cynicism of his men. And then in the end, spoiler alert, he sacrifices his life to complete his mission, which was, drumroll, to save Private Ryan, right? In that movie, Captain Miller is a mighty warrior. And that's what we think of when we think of mighty warriors, 
Right, and so here we are in, in, in this room right now, and for the last month, we've talked about how there's a spiritual battle going on, and we're commanded to like pick a side and jump into the action. We're commanded, in a sense, to become spiritual warriors. And for some of us, that just fits with how you're naturally wired anyway. And so you're pumped when you hear stuff like that, right? Like you're ready to shout out a battle cry and, and charge, even if you're not sure what direction to charge yet. Like you just, you like that kind of idea and you're into it. But then for others of us, this whole concept of a, of a spiritual battle, it feels like it makes us feel uncomfortable, makes us feel uneasy. And for some of us, it makes us feel defeated, if you're anything like me, the, the reason we feel defeated is because we know that warriors, at least the ones that are worth their salt, we know that warriors are mighty and we ourselves don't feel very spiritually mighty, right? Because our minds are so conditioned by movies and, and TV shows and books that when we try to think of warriors, all we can think of is like Rambo and Jason Bourne and Conan the Barbarian and Captain America or whoever. And so we can't imagine ourselves as mighty spiritual warriors, because let's face it, like I'll use myself as an example. I have depression, all right? I don't remember seeing the Rocky movie where Rocky Balboa sits out the next round because he's really sad, <laughs> right? I've never seen that movie, right? So it's hard to picture myself as a warrior. For others of us, we, we write ourselves off because we just don't, we, we don't feel like we have a heroic story, Right? We don't have that dramatic life change story. We don't have that story. It was like I was an addict or having all these affairs or I was like a wanted criminal on the lamb and then I met Jesus and my life changed. For, uh, for a lot of us, it just seems we've kind of got like boring, mundane, run-of-the-mill lives and so we're not sure what we have to offer other people. The point is that for, for some of us, we just feel defeated even before we've jumped in, into the battle, right? We, we took inventory of our lives. Like when we looked at our depression or anxiety or the overwhelming moral failures and sin in our lives, or we've looked at the skeletons that so far we've managed to keep in the closet of our life. We, we look at our family heritage and our upbringing or our mundane stories, and we just assume that we aren't the mighty spiritual warrior type. That's for other people, right? That's for pastors and missionaries and Bible professors and martyrs and saints, but it's not for us. Right, it's not for me. I'm too broken. I'm too far gone. Like I'll probably just end up being the deserter. I'll end up being the coward or I'll end up being the dude who screws up the mission and dies in the first five minutes of the movie. We're defeated before we've even jumped in to join the fight. And so back to the question I wanna look at today, what does it look like to be mighty warriors? And then the question underneath that one is, is it possible within the context of the kingdom of God that being mighty looks different from what we see in the movies. That's what we're gonna tackle today. All right, to begin tackling that question, I wanna look at some of the mighty warriors that we find in a part of the Old Testament. We're gonna look at a, a passage in the Old Testament that in most of your Bibles, it's titled, David's Mighty Men. Okay, if you wanna flip in your Bibles and get there before I start teaching on it, we're gonna be in 2 Samuel chapter 23. It's in your Old Testament near the beginning of your Bible. And here's what we're gonna to do together. At first, you're gonna think that this is a totally random thing that we're reading together. You're gonna to be very confused why I picked it to teach on it. But here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna kind of read through the whole thing. We'll break it down as we go. And then when we finish it, that's when I'll explain what this has to do with us living here in 2023, okay? To give us a little bit of context for what we're about to read, this passage is found at the very, very end of the story of King David's life, okay? Like David and Goliath, King David. 
And, and the passage is, is tucked right in between stuff about his death. So right before it, we hear David's final words on his deathbed. And then we get the passage we'll read today, like a random account about David's mighty men. And then right after that, we get the passage of David finally kicking the bu bucket and, and dying, right? It's just tucked in the middle. And so it's almost like the author of 2 Samuel is taking a quick time out from all the sad, dying David stuff to remind us that David wasn't the only dude who did mighty things during his reign. The author takes a time out to give us a summary of the other mighty men that David had surrounded himself with. In the passage, you'll see it reads like a Cliff's Notes on one of the coolest war histories I could ever imagine being written. Like every time I read David's Mighty Men, I find myself wishing that there was an entire book written about each one of these guys. Because as you can see, as you're about to see, these guys are, are tough, tough dudes. Okay, so we're going to kick it off. It'll seem random at first. We'll explain it at the end. We're going to kick it off in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 8, which goes like this. These are the names of David's Mighty Men. Okay, Josheb Bashabeth, a Tachamanite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. All right, so right off the bat, I know what you're thinking. You're very impressed because you're like, how did you learn to pr properly pronounce all of these <laughs> Bible names? And the truth is I never learned that. So <laughs> I'm just gonna butcher these names. Forgive me, I'm good at different stuff. But so in this first verse, we learned that there's Joshua Bashabeth. We'll just call him Josh for right now, okay? He was like one of the chief three top dogs of David's mighty men. We learned that one time Josh fought a battle against 800 men, just himself and his spear, okay? Not mano a mano, mano a 800 manos. <laughs> and he won, right? This guy is mighty. Next guy, look at this. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahohite, Lord help me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as, one of, as one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines at the, at, gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he, Eleazar, stood his ground and he struck down the Philistines until his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Okay, so in, in this Chunk, we've got our boy Eleazar. We learn that one time the entire Israelite army deserts him out of fear, but he stays put and he fights the Philistines until his hand cramped around his sword and got stuck. Coolest part of this story to me is that the Israelite army eventually returns to Eleazar, but not to help him fight. The fight is over. They only return to loot all of the enemies that Eleazar had single-handedly destroyed. This dude is mighty. Next guy, next to him was Shema, son of Agi, the Hererite. When the Philistines banded together at a place that, uh, at a, with a field full of lentils, Israel's troops, again, they fled from him. But Shema took a stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. So again, we've got Shema, the entire Israelite ab army abandons him. He sticks around and he fights the Philistines off in a field of beans, okay? The dude, dude is mighty, all right? Next few verses, we're gonna get a little short story, okay? And here's how the story starts. So during harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David, who was at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem, and David longed for water, and he said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. 
So the story starts, David is hiding out in a cave while the Philistines have Bethlehem surrounded. And basically David gets homesick, right? And he's like, oh man, I could really go for a drink of water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. He's saying what, the kinds of things that all of us say whenever we travel and we get homesick, right? It's like, man, I, I really could go for some of Ali's honey sriracha chicken, or I'd love to sleep in my own bed tonight. It's just like an offhand comment that he makes that his men then take literally. Look at this. So the three mighty men, they broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, broke through the lines again, carried it back to David. But then he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord and he said, far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. In case you missed it, these dudes, they broke through enemy lines twice to get David a bottled water, <laughs> to get him like a Dasani. And the funniest, the funniest part of this to me is that David didn't drink it. It's like if men risk their lives to get you a bottle of water, you should just drink the thing. But you get it, they're mighty, mighty men. We're gonna skip down a few verses uh, and we're gonna look at the last guy and then we'll figure out what this has to do with us, okay? Last guy that this passage goes into detail on is this. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel who performed great exploits. Here are some of the exploits he performed. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion, who hasn't? Um, and, then, and then he struck down a huge Egyptian. That one makes me giggle for some reason. Um, no one will ever remember me that way or you, right? Do you know Ben Foote? Yeah, didn't he strike down a large Egyptian? It's like, no, he just liked to read. <laughs> Think of someone different. Um, okay, keep going. He struck down a huge Egyptian. Here's how he did that. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty men. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included in the three. David put him in charge of his bodyguard. You get it. You're starting to see a theme here. And the theme is that these men were mighty men. They did incredible, almost unbelievable things. They were mighty warriors. And the author of 2 Samuel, he's taking a a time out in the middle of the, the narrative of David's death to just remind us that David wasn't the only mighty man around during his time. He didn't do any of this by himself. He was surrounded by other mighty men. Okay, now, some cool history. We got to read some cool like snippets of great battles and, and mighty men. But again, it's like it feels totally random. And what's the point, right? Like what does any of this have to do with our real lives here today in 2023? Well, to begin figuring that out together, we first need to take a minute to kind of refresh our memories on the story of King David, the life of King David, right? Some of us, maybe we don't know his story very well, or for some of us, maybe it's been a while. So we've got to refresh our memories. Okay, King David Undeniably, King David was a mighty man, a mighty warrior. He did incredible things. Okay, our minds, our minds jump to the David and Goliath story because that was absolutely incredible. But then David was incredible in other ways too. Okay, he was a faithful leader at a time when faithfulness was very rare. He was a, a good and strong king at a time when Israel didn't have good and strong kings. He was a renowned artist and poet and musician. Like the songs that David wrote, the Psalms are still being sung today, thousands and thousands of years later. No one's gonna do that with Taylor Swift. They do it with David. 
Okay, David is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. Doesn't mean that he had the same heart as God, but what it means is that every time he screwed up, he turned back to God and started chasing after God's own heart. David is the only person in the Bible described that way. He's incredible, okay? He's a, a mighty, mighty man. But we also have to remember that David wasn't just a man of great faith. David was also a man of great weakness and failure and baggage and sin. Okay, just to give you a few examples of that, he, he was the youngest and almost literally totally forgotten son of a large family. Some of us have that story. We know the baggage that that comes with. He had many, many, many wives. Okay, by today's standards, it would not be out of line to assume that David had a deep sexual addiction. He slept with a woman one time named Bathsheba who wasn't one of his many, many wives. He ended up getting her pregnant and so then he murdered her husband to cover the whole thing up. It's terrible. David was a lackluster father to say the least. Okay, his, his son Absalom, Absalom hated his father so much, tried to overthrow David's kingdom. In fact, and this is gonna get a little rated R for just a second, but it's just a part of David's story. One time Absalom, just to disdain his father, just to show his dad how much he hated him, Absalom took a bunch of women in David's household up onto the roof of the palace and slept with all of them in plain sight of all Israel. That is messed up. It should also serve as relief for any fathers in the room. Right? So I'm with you. We're not perfect. It feels like we don't know what we're doing. It feels like we're failing sometimes. It could obviously be worse. Right? I'm willing to bet that nothing like that has happened on your roof anytime soon. So hang in there. Um, my, my point is this, okay? Yes, God did mighty things through David. I would never deny that. But also at the same time, David was a mightily broken man. David had great faith and also great brokenness at the same time. And we've got to hold both of those things together. You can't forget one for the sake of the other. David had great faith and great brokenness. One of my absolute pet peeves, it drives me totally insane, is whenever pastors or Christians, they take men and women from the Bible and they try to turn them into flawless heroes. Okay. There is only one hero in the Bible. His name is Jesus, okay? No one else in the Bible. I don't care who you name, okay? Abraham, Noah, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, Jeremiah, you know, Peter, Paul, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't care who you name. No one else in the Bible is a hero. If you think that, you haven't done your reading. It's just not the case. No one else in the Bible is a hero. No one else in the Bible is perfect. Why? Because the Bible is largely a book of history, not myth. And, and there's just not been any flawless heroes, save for Jesus Christ himself, over the course of, of all of history. It just hasn't happened. In fact, in the Bible, it's almost the total opposite. Everyone else in the Bible, they are messed up. Okay, they make our lives look like clean as a whistle. And so if we're gonna figure out what this passage about David's mighty men has to do with us living today in 2023, we have to remember that David and his mighty men were mightily broken people through whom God did mighty and great things. I believe that is the point of the passage in the first place. I believe that's why it's there. To, to me, it feels like the, the author is celebrating 
Like he's, he's looking back on David's life. He's kind of reflecting over David's life. And the author just takes a moment to celebrate the fact that God does mighty things through broken people. Feels like the author's going like, look, like look at what God can do. Like if God could do stuff like that through broken, messed up David, he can do mighty things through you. And if God could do stuff like that through David's broken, messed up, mighty men, he can do mighty things through you. Feels like the author is like standing on the rooftops and shouting, God does mighty things through broken people. Whenever I I read through the list of David's mighty men, I can't help but start to think about the mighty men and women that I've had in my life, my own list of mighty men and women that I've been surrounded by. And, and there's been so many of them, right? Like I, you know, my mind immediately jumps to my family, the, the people closest to me. I think of my wife, Allie, all right? Well, we're, we are, neither one of us is perfect. We don't have the perfect marriage. At the same time, I don't want anyone else. Like she blows me away. She's my favorite person, right? I can't wait to grow old with her. At the same time, like I think of the sacrificial love that she displays to our kids. And through Allie, I get to see like the mighty tirelessness and patience of my God through Allie. I think about my dad. He never quit on me. When I, especially when I went through this decade of like deep, dark, spiritual darkness and doubt and outright anger with God, like my dad just never gave up on me. Like through my dad, I see like the mighty father on the doorstep in the Jesus' story about the prodigal son, the dad who's just praying for his kid and waiting for his kid to come back home. I think of my mom and my mother-in-law, Robin. They've, they've both shown me what it looks like to wake up every morning carrying the burden of mental illness, which is a burden that I also carry. And through my mom and Robin, I see the mighty words of the apostle Paul on display back when Paul said like, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Might not make sense to you, but when I'm weak, then I know I'm strong. I think of tons of people. I think of Jim, which is, I know, it's like hard to believe, but I do. I think of Jim, like Jim has shown me that Jesus isn't disgusted with my past. He's not even asking me to forget it or ignore it. He's asking to use it. He's asking to leverage it. Jesus isn't minimizing my past. He's just telling me, I want to use that because I've got greater things in store for you. I can see the mighty forgiveness of God through Jim's vulnerability. I think of the friends and and family that I've been able to encounter over the years. I think of my friends, Michael and, and Stephanie, who are still wrestling through their teenage daughter's suicide and they're walking through like the deepest, darkest night of their soul and they're clinging by like a fingernail to the hope of Jesus as they try to bear up under the weight of grief. Like Michael and Stephanie are mighty. I think of my friends, Josh and Ash, who have fostered and adopted two wonderful boys who carry a lifetime of grief and trauma. Like I've seen the mighty relentlessness of God's love through them. Josh and Ash are mighty Think of my buddy John who lost his wife to cancer and I've seen the mighty servitude of Jesus through, through John carrying Christine up and down the steps when she was too weak to do so or bathing her when she t- couldn't take care of herself anymore. Like John is mighty. My mind also, it jumps to people I'll never meet. I know that I'll never meet them. Some of them are already dead, like, but they're people who cleared out some of the church baggage so that I could finally see Jesus more clearly. Think of people like Diedrich Bonhoeffer and C.S. Lewis and Henry Nouwen and Anne Lamott and Wendell Berry and Thomas Merton. It's like people that I couldn't agree with everything they ever said or wrote in a book, but at the same time, they chased after Jesus at a dead sprint and they cleared out a path that someone like me could actually follow. They're mighty, mighty men and women. Those are just a few 
of my mighty men and women. If I started to go down the list of everyone, we would literally be here all day long. And I know none of us wants to do that. And so that's just a few of them. But, but then some of us are going, you're like, okay, dude, they sound like pretty cool people, but it also sounds like their lives are like screwed up. Yes. Of course, yes, exactly. It's it's the point that I'm trying to make. The point is that God does mighty things through broken people. The mighty men and women in my life, they are not pristine saints because I don't believe a pristine saint has ever existed other than Jesus Christ himself. The mighty men and women in my life are the people who, it's like the weight of real life and suffering and hardship and doubt and pain was laid heavy on their shoulders, but they're still standing. And they'd be the first to tell you that the only reason they're still standing is because of Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus alone. The mighty men and women in my life are the people whose battle cry could be 2 Corinthians 4 when Paul wrote, we are hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, we're very confused, but we're not in despair. And we're persecuted, but not abandoned. And we're struck down, but not destroyed. And we always carry in our body the death of Jesus so that almost paradoxically, the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And for that reason, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we are wasting away. From the outside looking in, it doesn't look like we're doing too well. We know the truth. We know that inwardly we're being renewed day by day by day. That's mighty. David can keep his mighty men who slayed their hundreds. I'll keep mine. Who are your mighty men and women? I really think it'd be a great exercise for today or or maybe tomorrow, since a lot of us have tomorrow off of work, to just take some time to reflect on your life and think about the mighty men and women that God has surrounded you with. Maybe take some time to just pick up the phone and call them and, and say thank you. But here's what you're gonna find. Okay, when you take inventory of the mighty men and women in your life, you're gonna find that not a single one of them is a flawless hero. In fact, in a lot of cases, some of these people are gonna be some of the most broken people you've ever met. This is why when I look out at a crowd like this, all I see are mighty men and women. I wish I could learn every single one of your stories. I know that you don't believe it, but I see mighty men and women because I know how my God works. And I know the truth that God does mighty things through broken people. But then here's what goes on right now. Okay, because I'm literally just no different than you. So I have all the same arguments in my own head, okay? We're sitting here, we're reflecting over the mighty men and women that God has surrounded us with. Maybe we're feeling thankful for some of these people. But then even in the midst of that thankfulness, there's this gross feeling in the pit of our stomach, this feeling of shame, and it's whispering at you. And I know what it's whispering, because it's whispering it to me. The whisper is saying, yep. God has done mighty things through the men and women in your life, but he can't do mighty things through you because you know you, right? And you are too broken. You are too far gone. I'm very familiar with that whisper. And I I know that some of us are too, but then at some point, we just got to say like enough is enough. And at some point you got to call that voice out for what it is. It's a liar, And listen, here's the truth. And I absolutely mean every single word I'm about to say for every single person in this room. Yes, even those of us whose hearts feel totally cloaked and burdened in shame right now. I mean everything I'm about to say. Here's the truth. If God is not good enough to be mighty through your brokenness, then God is simply not good enough. Period. Should all pack our bags and go home. 
The truth is that he is good enough. And the truth is that God does mighty things through broken people. And then just in case you were wondering or in case maybe you never knew, this idea that God does mighty things through broken people, it is the hope and the power of the gospel. The gospel is a different word for the good news, the good news that we've received, the good news that we wanna share with other people. And the gospel, the good news, is not that God did mighty things from a faraway place in outer space so that he would never have to get his hands dirty. That's not the good news. The good news is that Jesus broke himself, lowered himself in order to do mighty things here on the ground with us. The gospel, the good news is Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something that he wanted to keep holding on to. Instead, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and then being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, he lowered himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Listen, the good news is that Jesus walked away from a state of perfection. From his home with his father, he walked away from it in order to become human and enter into our mess and do mighty things here with us. The, the good news, is, is the power of the good news is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Really try to wrap your mind around this. It says this, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You could read that verse for decades and it should still blow your mind. The power of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life of perfection that culminated in what? In more perfection? No. He lived a life that culminated in being tainted by the sin of the world, yours and mine, so that sin could be nailed to a cross and put to death forever. Like the climax of history, that we've, the moment that Christians have put all of our hope and our faith and our trust in, the pinnacle of Jesus's mission and purpose on earth was not perfection. The pinnacle was Jesus hanging alone on a cross, burdened by the weight of the sin of the world, crying out to a silent father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did you forget me? The mightiest act of all of history displayed through, accomplished through brokenness. Listen, for some of us, this is not what we picked up from the church that we grew up in or whatever, but it, it is the truth. Listen, the power of the gospel was not displayed to us through the typical story of a mighty hero. The good news of Jesus is way more backwards and, and upside down and way more beautiful than that. Instead, the power of the gospel is displayed to us through a backwoods, no-name, destitute Palestinian Jew who was born on the wrong side of the tracks. Everyone thought he was an illegitimate child, but he claimed to be the son of God. And the power of the gospel is displayed to us through his life, Jesus's life, which in case you didn't know is a life that is marked by humility and servitude and hardship and suffering and deep loneliness and temptation and obedience. An obedience that eventually led him to a cross where Jesus was absolutely broken. It's only after all of that 
It's only after all of that brokenness that Jesus walked out of a tomb three days later, resurrected. It's only after all of that suffering that Jesus took his place at the right hand of God, back in his rightful throne, king of kings, king of the world, king of your life and mine, whether you've bowed to him yet or not. But it was only after all of that brokenness. And so listen to me. Did Jesus live a perfect life? Yes, he was the only one to ever do it. He's the only one who will ever do it. That's not the only reason Christians worship him. We bow to Jesus because he chose to be absolutely broken for us on our behalf. Because again, listen to me, the power of the gospel is that God does mighty things through broken people, Jesus included, Jesus above all, broken on our behalf. And so then here's the million dollar question for us today. And the question is this, if God accomplished the mightiest act of all history through the breaking of his son, Jesus, then why in the world do we think God is expecting us to be perfect? Why do we think that he's waiting around for us to clean up our acts and waiting around for us to put ourselves back together and unbreak ourselves? Why do we disqualify ourselves from being mighty warriors? Why do we disqualify ourselves because of our depression or our anxiety or our failures and sin and our baggage and our trauma and our family history and our shame and our secrets and our fear and our worry? Like, why do we disqualify ourselves? Why have we convinced ourselves that God only does mighty things through flawless heroes? That's just not how God operates. And crazier than that, it's not how his gospel, his good news, it's not how his good news mightily broke into this world. His good news broke into this world through our broken savior on a cross. And I believe that God is still mighty enough He's still mighty enough to continue allowing his hope to break into the world through, in the midst of, and in spite of our brokenness because God does mighty things through broken people. It's the story cover to cover of the Bible. Listen, here's the truth. The story of Jesus's resurrection is a story that is told through scars, the story told through the scars in his, in his hands and in his feet and in his side. It's told through scars. We're not going to be any different. Remember at the beginning of this thing, I asked the question, what does it look like to be mighty warriors? Well, in the kingdom of God, in that context, mighty warriors tell the stories of their scars. We point to the brokenness in our lives and we bear witness to the fact that Jesus is slowly but surely healing our brokenness. And so we show people our scars. We show people our mental illness and our physical illness. We show people the greatest mistakes and failures of our lives so that they can learn from them. We show people our scars and we say, look at how Jesus is using my brokenness. If he can be mighty through me, he can be mighty through you. That is what it looks like to be a mighty warrior in the kingdom of God. It looks like facing the world around you and saying, I am mightily broken, but my God is mightier. And so as we gear up to kind of kick off a a whole other series next week, I would be honored right now to, just as a friend and like a, a fellow warrior right now, I'd be honored to leave you with some encouragement today. And I'd love to remind you of what the hope of the gospel, the hope of the good news is. So I'm going to ask that everyone stand with me right now. Some of you, maybe this is your first time and you didn't know the good news. Some of us, we just need 
to be reminded. But here's the power of the good news. The good news is the fact that God slayed giants through a broken, messed up man named David, and he is not done yet. He will slay your giants. He will slay my giants. He's gonna do it like he always did. He's gonna do it through broken people because God does mighty things through broken people. The good news is the fact that Jesus, he broke himself on our behalf. And then because of that sacrifice of Jesus, like you and I are now more than the sum of all of our sin and our mistakes and our baggage and our trauma. Those things were put to death. Like our shame was nailed to a cross. You really don't have to carry it anymore. You and I are now sons and daughters of the living God. The good news is the fact that our lives point to Jesus, not because we've never been broken. That's a lie. Our lives point to Jesus because we are broken and he loves us anyway. That is the story that we have to share with the world. Like Jesus wants to show the entire world that he does not quit on his people. How is he gonna do that? He's gonna do that by proving and showing that he has not quit on people like us. Broken, messed up people like you and me. So Flatirons, don't be defeated as we continue next week into this next series where we start talking about this battle that we're a part of. In the midst of all that, please don't forget and don't ever let go of the good, good news. Because the good news is that your scars don't cover up your stories. The good news is that your stories are told through your scars. And the good news is that you are not too far gone. And that is because our God is far too good. And the good news is that for as long as God continues to do mighty things through broken people, I promise you, he can do mighty things through you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are. God, you're not asking for our perfection. You were perfect on our behalf and you're not asking for us to clean up your lives. You're telling us that slowly but surely you wanna clean up that mess with us. God, you're just saying that we're not too far gone. We're not too broken. We're not too messed up. We're not disqualified. Like you constantly tell us that over and over and over again. And we constantly find reasons to believe that that could be true for every single other person in the room, except for us. God, teach us some truth. God, give us just a touch, just like even just a taste of your true, genuine grace today. You're so amazing. And you look at us and you, and you say, I am more than prepared to be mighty through you. Not because you've cleaned up your act and gotten stuff together, but because you are broken. And I do mighty things through broken people. God, for the next few minutes as we sing this next song, we're just gonna worship you and we're gonna reflect on, on how good you are. And we're gonna reflect on this idea that you've just been running after us. You've been chasing after us. God, help us to kind of abandon ourselves into your arms and surrender ourselves into your arms and to, to quit trying this nonstop like chase after perfection and instead to just abandon ourselves into your arms and let your grace move in and through us. God, I love you so much. And, and ultimately, I thank you for the hope that you made come alive into the world through the breaking of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his holy, holy name that I pray right now. Amen.